This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja, and I'm the founder of Think Productive. We work with some of the world's leading companies to help them get stuff done, but more importantly, to help their people to make space for what matters. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is Alex Barker. Alex is the chief pirate at Be More Pirate. She's also the co-author of How to Be More Pirate with Sam Conniff, who we've previously had on this show. And having spent years working in some quite traditional establishment workplaces, she's on a mission to fill them with a sense of rule-breaking rebellion. In this episode, we talk about what it means to be a pirate, challenging the status quo, she shares her reflections on burnout, and we give you loads of ways to apply the pirate code creatively to make work and life better. This is Alex Barker. Alex Barker, how are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on. Um, where are you in the world right now? I am in my flat in London, which is in Hither Green, which no one's ever heard of. But it's sort of between ah. Blackheath and Lewisham and Catford, I'd say. Yes, I had a, a friend who lived in Hither Green, actually. So I have been to been to Hither Green before. Yeah, it's, it's surprisingly small with a massive train station. There's six platforms serving really yeah. small... <laughs> few streets and there's probably some like historical reason for that to do with victorian train line planning or something yeah and i even london's quirky like that right definitely and i definitely i even think they've probably explained it on in photographs on the wall of the train station but i've never really read them (laughs) right yeah it's 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 quite nice nice yeah well i'm in brighton it's the sun is shining. It's a lovely day uh, out here. So that's nice. Um, and we're here. We're going to talk about um, your book, mm. um, which is called How to Be More Pirate. And it links back to um, Sam's book, Be More Pirate, which was the sort of start of this journey. And we've had Sam on Beyond Busy before. So if you're an avid Beyond Busy listener, you've probably heard the episode I did with Sam Conniff Allende uh, previously. Um, so you became Sam's right-hand pirate, <clears throat> and now you are the chief pirate. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, so from from ninja to pirate, I have to kind of start um, at, at the beginning of that then. So tell me the story about how did you come across Sam? How did you come across the whole idea of be more pirate, and, yeah. and how did you get involved? Um, so I... I did remember Sam because he came, cause I, so I was working at the RSA, which is the Royal Society of Arts. It's a social innovation charity, think tank, and sort of membership organization um, for people who want to do positive change. And I remember Sam coming to do a talk about Be More Pirate, um, but I didn't really pay any attention to it because we have, have, we have about <laughs> three or four speakers a week. Um, at that right. point, I was personally a little bit burnt out by taking on two extra jobs and I yeah I kind of just honestly was getting a bit disillusioned with the whole social change world agenda anyway I I thought here's another guy coming in with his big idea and his book and sure it's a great marketing concept but what does that mean for doing anything and in the world and I 
yeah, so I was kind of, didn't really pay any attention to Be More Pirate. And then I, I took a, I was taking on these extra jobs because I was really working towards a sabbatical. The RSA lets you take a sabbatical after, I think, five or so years. So I was really just gearing up to this massive break when I could go off and kind of figure out, A, why I'd gotten so burnt out and what I actually, whether I was heading in the right direction at all. So that was, so I did on the sabbatical, I went to Vietnam and thought I'll just be somewhere warm and you know, chill out for a bit. And I had them. Nice. How long is the sabbatical that they let you take? I, I took the full whack of six months, although I ended up playing six it short months, and doing yeah. four months. Because... Do they pay you for all of that? No, or they, they just pay, you pay for some you. It's unpaid. So you have to obviously. Unpaid. That's okay. why I was working two extra jobs. Okay. So you're working the extra <laughs> jobs to, to burn yourself out in order to take the time. Honestly, yeah, well, sense, we can though. talk about burnout later, but it, it, was not yeah. the, it was not the physical labor of the extra job I was doing is actually working with this woman who's now an author who's fantastic it's like the most uplifting person you could work for we're doing this project on domestic violence research and it was fascinating actually that that was really interesting I didn't it was more I think it was the grind probably more at the RSA that was and a few other things personally that were going on so yeah so I'd, I'd left I'd taken and I took my, my Kindle with lots of potential books to read and I'd basically done this thing of just downloading the first chapter of all the books that looked a bit inspiring or interesting could help me redirect myself and one of them was Be More Pirate but I started reading it and I put it down because I just thought god you know yes it's gonna be about social change and I don't have any I just didn't have any faith in any of that anymore um and so I was like looking for something I don't know else um I think I just started reading fiction I was like just want to bury myself in another world um and then it was kind of a series of like coincidences, I suppose, in a way that got me to be more pirate in the end. I I spent a bit of time really thinking about what I wanted to do and why I had ended up where I'd ended up and what did I what was I really looking for out of my life? And I basically just created some I just wrote down some words. Um one of them was adventure. And I then I broke it down a bit more and said, like, I want a lack of routine, I want something more exciting, I want to be able to connect with lots of different people and I don't know, but yeah, a bit of serendipity, I think. Um, and just be learning all the time. So those were a few things. I just wrote that down. I was like, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what job role it is or sector, but I, that's where I'm going. So you just wrote it down as like themes, basically. Yeah. Like these are the these are the flavors of what I want. And I don't know what sector that is or yeah. what job role it is, but just like I want this. Yeah, yeah, I kind of instinctively thought about what are the conditions I want in my life rather than, because I kind of just knew that, aiming for like a job, a specific job probably won't make, won't end, make me happy. I have to figure out what it is that I actually, yeah, the conditions in my life that I want first. Um, so, and then I think that was quite, that was near the beginning. And then a couple of weeks later, um, I came across Alistair Humphreys, who's this adventure writer who I think, you know, you. Yes. He's also been on the <laughs> yeah, podcast before. As well. I he did. <laughs> because ah, cool. well it was one of many like I just said oh this guy's got a really great podcast and um oh well thanks because he was I really enjoyed having him on and also I still follow his email list and Instagram and stuff and um he he always inspires me with his little things of um go and sit up a tree for 20 yeah. minutes and think I I often don't do the things but it makes me inspired to go out and do that more or just get outside more and that kind of thing like his sense of adventure is very infectious yeah yeah even if you take a nugget of it right it's great like yeah he's, he's totally. fantastic and it was uh 
I've read eight years worth of his blog. That was my job. <laughs> <laughs> so I know I definitely haven't applied all of that, but um, yeah, he's, he's fantastic. And I mean, he mm. encapsulated that kind of spirit of adventure that I was looking for. So when I saw that he was looking for a kind of intern who, who that could, was it like a remote job, seven hours a week, no real commitment, um, take it, you know, take it as, as you want to do it. And here's the things I need doing, or I want help on. And it really fitted my comms background. Cause I was, do, I did communications at the RSA. So I thought, okay, here's someone with a community, uh, looking at engagement strategies and blogs and like how to reorganize the website and all stuff I'd done. And so, yeah, yeah, I kind nice. of wrote a, yeah, just applied to that and, um, started working with him very, very casually, really. And that lasted a couple of months. Well, no, it didn't, it lasted. I tried to keep it on when I started working as a as pirate in pirating but it, it quickly became pretty impossible but it was yeah it was through um I saw the job ad with Al on Escape the City and then I'd sort of signed up to their alerts and that's where I also saw the job advert for Right Hand Pirate and kind of had this feeling the same gut feeling I'd had with the job with Al that this was just the right thing to do and it was the next step in the adventure and I just felt really like yes okay this is the thing. yeah go for it so right hand pirate and what were your expectations around what would the working conditions of a right hand pirate look like <laughs> uh yeah um i thought it was pretty clear in the description that he that there would be a lot of flexibility and autonomy and that was what i was looking for that's what i needed but with you know the, the ability to, to to direct how this went because it was essentially to build a community out of be more pirate and I, yeah. you know, I knew a bit about building communities through the RSA. So, but I thought, well, I can take what I know doesn't work there and apply it and do it differently. But then when I kind of got into the deeper job descriptions that had been put all, yeah, that had been put together, um, cause after you kind of got through the first round of it, there was a sort of more in, in depth description of what kind of things might be part of the job. And that's when I could start to take to task some of it. Like, why do we want to do it? It was like an event every month. And I said, well, that's a lot of work. I know that's a lot of work. Mm, yeah. um, that could take up, you know, half your month organizing planning, especially if we're not, if we're under resourced or it's just me. Or, um, so I was like, I'm not going to go and just do that just because that's what's written down. I need to think about what is the end goal here? Like, what are we, what are we gathering these people for? What are we trying to, what's the impact? Um, it's not about scale. And Sam had said like, he, he under, you know, he's against scale in the book. So what, mm. or he, that can't be the measure of success or maybe it is, but over time, but I need to understand these people who've responded to your book first. I need to know our community before I can do anything with it. That was my approach. So yeah, I could. And also part of working around like the whole Be More Pirate thing is having the confidence to question everything right and do things differently mm -hmm. and all that stuff so if you got in there and just said yep here's the exact list of stuff you want i will deliver exactly that it's kind of not really in keeping with how all this stuff works right no but you know it's really it's amazing how much the pullback is some people have described it to me as like an elastic band of like conventionality that pulls you back in you try and stretch it but then it sort of snaps you back we are just somewhat conditioned to do things in a particular way and as soon as you start to break out of that it does feel a bit un it feels uncomfortable and it feels wrong mm, yeah it's quite hard to resist that especially in a, an interview where you are facing someone you think must know better than you or but then I asked Sam very directly I said who is your community like who is this? Mm. I'm gonna be a community manager who is it to and he goes I have no idea 
know. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. And there was like a lot of humor and, and authenticity and sincerity there that was just, you know, I could see that this would work. Nice. Yeah. So before we delve into the role and what you're doing, we should probably just backtrack slightly and talk a bit more about piracy, pirates, mm. uh, be more pirate as a theme. So do you want to just give us the uh the the kind of main uh story of why being a pirate is a useful thing mm-hmm. in work and business and life yes okay so the the gist of be more pirate um in one sentence is the way things are is not the way things have to be um and it reframes the the golden age of piracy, um, a period of history that's a really short period of history from about 1690 to 1725, um, when this small group of kind of ordinary citizens, um, mainly sailors in the Navy and on merchant ships, kind of decided that they were going to rebel and they were going to go off, form crews of their own and kind of live and work in their own way. Um, and obviously the establishment uh, criminalised them, called them pirates, and since they've since cre- created and developed this reputation of um, kind of being bloodthirsty villains that has been rubber stamped by Walt Disney. But actually pirates, um, the story is a bit different and that's what Be More Pirate talks about or Sam talks about. Um, these people actually were really kind of seeking freedom and, and a better a better life. You know, on, on a Navy ship, you would probably, um, you were unlikely to, well, you had a 50, 60% chance of survival. <laughs> and then you also, well, wow. that was, yeah, it was like yeah. only, only, um, 40% of sailors died on any voyage. And wow. so they over, they over recruited, which obviously made the conditions worse. So <laughs> you're on a ship that's overcrowded, where you're more likely to get disease. And that's what contributed to the high death rate. And then at the end of it, if they hadn't succeeded in their, um, you know, whatever plundering the ship was doing, they, you wouldn't necessarily even get paid as a, as a crew member. There was absolutely zero like good working conditions. And that was just the way things were. You were not a person of importance or relevance. And so you could be treated in whatever way the people with the wealth decided. And, you know, ships were owned by, la- you know, m- merchants back on shore. So they weren't even involved. You didn't have really any investment in how the voyage went other than it sort of survived. So it was pretty dire. And so you can see like why being a pirate might actually be a bit more appealing. Um, right. It's not because yeah. they just, you know, I, I get this all the time. People say, didn't, weren't they just thieves? Didn't they just rob everyone? And yes, they did rob people. But if you consider at the time where it was a time of empire, when really we were kind of going around robbing lots of places as a nation and especially the Spanish. And I, I think, mm. you know, it's a, a slightly different moral framework. So pirates, on the, and so what pirates were doing when they had formed their ships or their crews was um, creating a different way of living and working together that was a, was in direct opposition to the Navy and what they'd experienced. So like, we can't do it that way because we know how easily, you know, power corrupts. And so they just created means to um, ensure that conflict didn't break out on board. Things like equal pay, equal say, um, kind of, yeah, uh, social insurance so that people got injured they would actually get compensation so they weren't just being kind of like thrown into battle um they even had same-sex marriage they had you know very like alongside relative equality they they actually invited um people on from 
wherever. It was very diverse. They had black pirate captains, they had female pirates. So it was this entirely, what seems when we look back now, really, really progressive agenda. And I don't think it was necessarily mm. trying to be progressive. It was just that they were just doing things that made sense in order to stop mutiny. And it's a really interesting parallel and reflection to today where a lot of people inherently know that a lot of the rules we have in our workplaces don't really make sense, but no one really says anything or does anything about it. Um, yeah. Wait, you know. And I guess things aren't, you know, quite to the level of uh, slum conditions where 40% of you will die, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, to, to, so, so there's a, a little bit more comfort is enough to push people more into conformity. Right. Whereas if, you know, the, the tougher things get, the more likely people are to rebel think, and try and think of something else. Mm. Yeah, but I think I just to sort of push back on that, I think there is a, a point about visibility because we know that when you do surveys, like 85% of people are disengaged from work. So there is a sort of mm, quiet yeah. misery perhaps about it. And we've seen, you know, see the rise in sort of mental health problems that's not really acknowledged a lot of the time. I'm not saying it's quite the same, but I think at least in my experience, there's a lot more going on underneath the surface and it's not quite as happy or as comfortable as maybe we'd like to think. Um. Yeah, that's true. And I saw you did a, you did a talk recently. And one of the things you were saying in that was how like no one's coming to save us. Mm. Right. So I think you were sort of reflecting on what happened with Brexit and, Mm. you know, politicians were, seemingly you know acting as if they knew all the answers but quite clearly didn't know all the answers and i think you talked about when when will all the grown-ups turn up and who's going to come and save us and there's something in the philosophy of pirates which is very much around action right it's like let's not just sit and feel you know quietly dejected by this sort of you know quite discomfort but let's actually just grab the bull by the horns do something make some change take action so like action's a big part of this whole philosophy right yeah absolutely is um that no one's coming to save you is is directly from be more pirates of nick nick sam's line um but that's the line the line that has um definitely resonated with the most people and it was definitely how i felt at the time of joining this of realizing a hang on but yeah no it is it is about action and it was because i think you know my my revolt from the Navy, if I call the RSA the Navy, I don't care, <laughs> the establishment, let's say, uh, was mm. that, yeah, there was a lot of talk about change, but what does it mean to really put your money where your mouth is? You know, um, what will you sacrifice to actually make these ideals happen? I think that's important. Yeah. Um, you know, whether it's sacrificing a bit of extra time, a bit of extra cash, like putting a bit on the line, maybe it doesn't feel like, this is exactly within budget, but maybe it's worth it. But I didn't see any of that real kind of urgency or courage emerging. Or when it does, it was stamped out quite quickly, oddly, I think. Um, that that sort of energy that pirates have, I feel like that's what we need. And that's definitely why I found in Be More Pirate and what obviously thousands of other people have as well, which is great. Yeah. And a lot of that is an entrepreneurial kind of energy, right? Where you, you just want to create something and you believe in it so much that you you make it happen even if you don't know where the money is going to come from or mm-hmm. how you're going to eat in three weeks time or something and, and you know you don't necessarily have that stability of paycheck but you just 
you just inherently know that this is the thing that you want to do. Mm. Like, why do you think that kind of entrepreneurial risk-taking pirate kind of energy is always stamped out because surely there's within teams always a need to push stuff forward and have people that are willing to take risks. Yeah. So that's a really good question. Well, I think in terms of, I, I think I was part of that stamping out. Um, and I I think there's something about the fact that we are taught that critical thinking is a valuable skill. So, you know, questioning people and doubting their ideas is useful mm. to an extent because you're sort of challenging it. But actually the way that it's done quite often sort of puts a, a roadblock in their own self-belief. I'd noticed that a lot from working with social entrepreneurs who are maybe not not particularly not well established yet or and you know it's and I didn't appreciate I really really didn't appreciate how hard how much hard work it is to be an entrepreneur of any kind, social or otherwise. You know, that 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 you're trying to create this whole thing on your own probably um fight get funding you're doing every aspect of the business and whereas in an organization you you know that work is so so much more evenly spread so i think it's definitely a um a recourse to like question whether you know whether this idea is really viable but then i think that there's a lot of ego that comes into um the ideas space let's say of like this is my mm-hmm. idea or that's been done before or like you're not kind of, yeah, I, th- I think <laughs> that's definitely. Um, and then I, I guess if you're talking about being on, entrepreneurial in an organizational setting, like you're the person who's saying, let's do the new idea. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it does, because I can say this from my own perspective. I remember a guy coming into the RSA when I was comms manager who was, who was phenomenally bright and could come up with some new kind of workarounds for our, our system that wasn't quite there. And I definitely felt threatened by it. I was like, you're doing my job for me. You're doing it better than me. Hmm. And because you've got this new, fresh perspective of going, well, why do you do it that way? That doesn't work. And he just come in and I was like, wow. But, you know, luckily, like, I guess I, I was like, we've, you know, the, the goal is to improve it. So let's, let's go with it. And I could recognize my ego <laughs> and go, okay, just get over it. Uh, but I can yeah. see that that would be something that, that definitely, that does cause a, uh, that's a reason why people could sort of get shut down very, very quickly. Um, and sometimes- it's like change and ruckus are just inherently uncomfortable, right? So if you're part of a team or, or an organization where a lot of stuff is changing, then that will be uncomfortable because the goalposts are moving, your roles are moving, different people are coming in. Like it's kind of upsetting the structures and normalities, right? Yes, I, you know, I don't know if I agree with that because I think that change when change is good, people are like, yes, or if they're able to be fully involved in it and, and, yeah, that's and contribute. True. But it's when you're, yeah. the change comes in and, and you, it's like a threat to what you've already been doing. So I see that a lot yeah. when, in working with companies where the change is such a threat to your kind of organizational identity. And it kind of may, means that your role is either a bit redundant or it's a, a sort of insinuation that what you were doing was not really the right thing. That's just really hard to deal with. And if it's not dealt with openly. So I think the the point is you have to find ways ways in which you deal with that challenge. So as a, as a challenger, you have to come in and, and understand how to manage it and use a bit of diplomacy. So it's odd yeah. coming from a pirate because I think that the impression is that we're guns blazing all the time. But actually, this is a, something I've learned through our community that 
practicing challenge in the right way is really important. So you're prepared, you're confident, you're not backing down, but you're understanding where the resistance is likely to be and take on board other people's views. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me about the community then. You, you just mentioned the community there. So when you first came on board, you said to Sam, who's the community? He said, I don't know. But then obviously that was a while ago and you've built up a bit of a community now. So who who are in, who's involved in that community and what are, what are they doing and discussing and what plans are being hatched together? Yeah. Um, yeah. So at the beginning it was, I didn't know who everyone was. And I think, so what I started to do is just to pick up the emails that Sam had received from people and respond and just dig around, build relationships in the, whatever way I, I could. Some people were abroad, some people were UK, wherever possible. I met people face to face. I think it's just better. And it's, yeah, it, I guess I describe it less as a network of like be more pirate and then there's loads of individuals, but it's almost like there's lots of individuals who have crews of their own. So it's like mm, right. People. Yeah. Um, and we've got, yeah, quite distinct crews in different places. So like I was, I'd got a whole chapter in the book about like, the health and social care pirates, because that was definitely the sector that responded most to the book. Um, and that's the point about piracy, like where you have an environment that's very rule driven and very hierarchical, mm. need more pirates because, or at least maybe they haven't moved to that yet, but the feeling of like, this is what we need is bit is stronger than when you're in a, perhaps a more creative environment to begin with. Um, and so yeah, I had the health and social care crew. Uh, there's a whole sort of what they call the artistic mutiny, which is all about challenging funding in the arts and mm. getting fairer pay for freelancers and things. And that's, yeah, that grew really quickly. Um, it's led by a woman called Sarah Sheed and kind of went from like a hundred, like five meeting in, like she had five people around for dinner and then it, Next day, she put up a Facebook group to say, it's anyone interested in getting involved? Then it was like 100 people. Then it was like 1,000. <laughs> she's, like, wow. she's like, what do I do with all these people? Wow. And now she's the, head, the captain of that crew. Like I, <laughs> uh, so, so that's sort of, I guess, how it works. There's various others. in, And they have their own thing. And this is a really important part. This is also a really important part about the network building is that it's not Be More Pirate trying to subsume everyone with our yeah, brand right. of the book. Yeah. It's like you take piracy and, and you understand how what battle you're fighting and make it your own and fly your own flag like high and we'll we'll fly high, as high as we can as well um i don't yeah. want to um yeah I, that kind of brand control or being trying to be a nucleus like only insofar as it supports what they're doing um so mm. yeah there's like various things i mean there's all kinds of challenges going on in the healthcare guys like they they just this morning we're talking about how one of their missions is to try to get more spaces in hospitals um, made into sort of like public living room style places so that people can meet and connect because it's so lonely and alienated mm. and hospitals are just still very clinical. There's just no one there really doing that. Um, but it's a very small intervention that could really make the difference to people who are there a lot or carers who are coming in and out all day. Um, yeah. So that's just, that was just one example of, kind of the kind of rules they're trying to break and rewrite. Um, nice. And there's a few examples of this in in your yeah. book as well, right? Where people have taken the inspiration from Be More Pirate and then applied it. So, yeah. are there any others that you uh, could mention here that might inspire people listening to this to to break some rules? Um, sure. Uh, there's there's like the whole book is examples. <laughs> so I'm trying to think like what's right. the what's the most useful thing. I mean, there's like 
There's small rule breaks that start because, what I call small bold actions that start because you, you just see something that just doesn't make sense to you and you kind of got to, um, you know, it's just a sort of right that you can, a wrong that you can write quite quickly. Something like, um, there's the, one of the examples in the book is I, and I've given it lots of times in various talks, but is a woman who, um, was working in HR and says, I hate the fact that we use competitive instead of actual salary ranges or even a, a distinct salary. Like, mm. It just doesn't seem fair that people wouldn't know what they're going to get paid. Um, yeah. and so I said, you know, you can change that. Like, why not change it? Um, and then there were kind of bigger, there were like bigger ideas or like these ideas. And then there's what, I guess there's one crew in, in the Manchester group who, who just created a, a set of new rules that they put on the end of their, um, email signature, which is about breaking the tyranny of emails and just like changing the email culture. Cause they felt it was so stifling and it's, it's like a really small step, but like an, a significant one in trying to change the culture. And then there's like other organizations. Um, one that's right at the beginning, the child's rights international network, which is a human rights NGO and their, their challenge is big. Like they're trying to challenge the entire sort of NGO charity sector about the way that it's, it operates and is run, but they started by sort of creating their pirate code to set out their principles and their values to, to talk about what they're really standing against. And it's things like they're, they're standing against like types of jargon and um, yeah, like vague and obstructive language that often gets bound up in when you're talking about human rights that stops people from really understanding the issues properly and it's like yeah. launched kind of bigger campaigns that tackle like some quite fringe issues around children's rights, but they all kind of stem from their code and understanding their values. So they range from like small break rule breaks to like big kind of missions. Yeah. Um, nice. Hmm. Yeah. There's like lots of different. Um, I want to hear more about the email one, obviously <laughs> with this being a productivity podcast. Oh, yeah, so, so tell me about yeah, the, yeah, so, how to break the email rules. So I think they put, um, be more pirate, break the tyranny of emails by thinking before I email, can I have a conversation instead? Taking protected time away from email and spending it on focusing on the stuff that will make the biggest difference. Checking my tone. Am I structuring my email in a way I'd be pleased to receive? And if it's bad news, I won't deliver it by email. Just like four rules that they created around to make their email nice. culture better. Um, quite simple. And I think on the productivity side, one um, one that's kind of I've often used in talks and things is um, the team at Birdseye, who, who all of their rules were pretty much around productivity because they were just overwhelmed by their emails and their, and their diaries. So they had things like no meet a meeting free Mondays, um, a one in one out rule. So if a new piece of work comes on your desk, you have to let something else go. Um, they gave everyone, mm. yeah, just, um, be here now, which is a no mobile, no mobiles in meetings rule. Fuck it time, which is to give everyone two hours a week pure to just work on something creative. Um, what else? Kind of the 80, 20 rules. So, can't remember that. Is that right? I might have got that wrong. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, a productivity that's the, thing. That's the gist of like, and what and what the main the main like crux of their their kind of mutiny though was that what they needed was collective permission because it was too too kind of scary for one person to just go right up mm. this anymore. They needed to have that open conversation about okay, this is just this is not allowing us to put this is not this stuff is creating no space for us to achieve our bigger ambitions so but i don't want to stop doing it because i'm afraid of looking incompetent or lazy or whatever so they just needed to recognize collectively this stuff gets in our way so we need to yeah we have a thing with think productive with our uh annual strategy day where one of the items on the agenda is always 
smash shit up, which comes from Brewdog. Yeah. Um, and the item is basically questioning things that we're doing that we don't think are necessary, um, killing any sacred cows, and just being curious. So the idea of it is that everybody fills in stuff on post-it notes, and then we put them on a on a flip chart. And I read them out because I I can't recognize anyone's handwriting. So it's basically an anonymous way of of getting these things across. And it's amazing how often you say this two hour meeting that we're doing every month, is it actually useful? And everyone goes, oh, thank God, someone else. <laughs> you know, like, everyone sort of suffers quietly with a lot of this stuff, don't they? Whereas actually, if you have the permission, but you have to create the, the permission and the environment to actually discuss it. Otherwise, like you say, people just feel like they're stepping out of line or they feel like, you know, they're the only one that thinks this, they don't want to look stupid. There's a whole bunch of things that stop that kind of, you know, that kind of attitude of of curiosity of developing, I think. Absolutely. And on the flip side of the meetings, I I wouldn't say even get rid of meetings altogether, but we need to like repurpose meetings. So I've seen teams think about using them to actually create more connection or to use them um, particularly for companies that are, have a more purpose-driven mission or more ethical in some way to really touch base on, their their mission and what they're reading about the wider landscape of it particularly when it's environmental stuff because it's become you know it's quite yeah. urgent and um there's a, a lot of anxiety around that um and whether we're doing enough and what is enough and i think yeah that 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 communication using meetings for real commu- real proper communication like deep like dialogue rather than task orientated so, yeah absolutely um so before you took on this whole new mission around piracy um the organizations that you worked for before so the rsa and before that you were studying at king's college Mm. studying international development and specializing in looking at the middle east and peace in the middle east like a lot of stuff that feels quite and you know and a lot of stuff around supporting charities and social entrepreneurs like a lot of that feels quite almost quite establishment-y, right? And a lot of you working with with and interfacing with a lot of big institutions. Mm. So is that something that you feel like you've rejected? Or mm. tell me more about oh, that God, yeah. Yeah. Uh, place that you got to in terms of feeling burnt out and, and like like you weren't really in the right place? Um, yeah. So I just, you know, I did like what anyone did. I just went to university because my parents told me to. <laughs> Um, and actually, I, weirdly, I wanted to originally study Egyptology, but my dad was like, you will never get a job. Right. <laughs> never, yeah. And I'm not paying for that. So, like, all right, <laughs> fine. Take your point. So I ended up, I actually did literature first. Um, and that was brilliant. And that was an odd degree. It was like comparative literature, which is like, um, it's an American degree. So you end up studying really random things like from, you can just pick anything kind of like from all over the world. So you don't do the kind of Dickens Shakespeare okay. stuff so I don't really I don't know I definitely had a taste for like more fringe things but I did international relations after because I it was it was 2008 and it was a recession and I had no idea what to do I had no idea my literature degree just seemed like useless um that sounds really derogatory um but it was sort of the narrative that I was being told and I didn't have any particular specialist skills to offer so I just thought I'll continue studying as the opportunity was there and um very gratefully received by my parents and <laughs> i 
And I just, I thought politics, because I'd done politics A-level, I kind of interested in politics and it sounded serious. I was like, people will take it seriously mm. if I do this. That was pretty much my thinking. Um, <laughs> it was like as basic as that. Um, and then it was also my best mate. One of my best mates on my course was like, I'm doing international conflict studies. You should do the same. That was pretty much our conversation. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I was like, no, so far from piracy at that point. And I ticked the Middle East modules sort of by accident. I didn't really know what they meant. I didn't know what the occupied territories since 1967 meant, but I just thought, okay. Because it was, they, they did said that you wouldn't necessarily get those modules. So I thought, well, try. Anyway, I ended up on these Middle East courses and kind of really delved into, yeah, the, the particularly the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, I also have family in Israel. So that was sort of like a background. I guess it was a background interest I hadn't really acknowledged, but kind of ended. And, it, and we were just after the Iraq war as well. So there was this huge upswell of interest mm. in what was that region. And it was so fascinating and kind of illuminating in many ways. Um I want to say something about it being establishment. Yeah, it. I start. I guess in in. I questioned. I did have acad- like intellectual questions about what we were being taught, around the way that the world works, around systems and the kind of very convincing neoliberal narrative around how how countries are self interested entities and you know following people as self interested entities, and I kind of thought that doesn't really ring true to me, to be honest. But I didn't. It was just what you were taught. And I didn't really think that I knew anything. So I didn't really yeah. think that other than evidencing thoughts through already established texts, I didn't, there wasn't that much room for really original thought uh, in that respect. Have you come across um, Rutger Bregman's new book, Humankind? It's on, yeah, it's on the many long. Yeah. So his sent, uh, yeah, like I'm like halfway through it. The central thesis of it is that, um, we're always taught that everybody is selfish mm. yeah. and the narrative that he breaks down a lot in the book is um, Lord of the Flies, right? So if you leave people to their own devices, then eventually they'll all screw each other over mm. and, and do terrible things. And he breaks this down by saying there was actually, you know, because Lord of the Flies is just fiction mm. and it's become this thing that apparently deeply analyzes the you know the human condition Mm -hmm. but there was a time in the 1970s where lord of the flies happened for real Mm -hmm. in a little island um, somewhere off australia i think like somewhere in the south pacific and basically these kids which is quite an ironic thing to talk about with you is that they set off sailing um on a little kind of rebellion you know piracy mission of their own and then they fell into trouble i think the boat got some problems and they ended up shipwrecked on an island. Mm. And this, you know, this really happened in the 1960s or 1970s. And they were eventually saved and rescued like five years later. But they had been self-sufficient. They had all these cooperative structures. They had figured out as a bunch of 17-year-olds how to cooperate and how to look after each other. One of them broke their leg and they managed to he he healed like really perfectly healed and stuff like this and so the book is basically saying we are all taught and we're sort of taught to assume everyone's selfish these systems are all really ingrained Mm. and his thing is actually the opposite is true Mm. and you know people are actually pretty selfless and pretty generous and and you know i think he says on about page three it's like most people are pretty decent you know, if they're given the chance to be, most people are good. Yeah, I, I, you know that 
I would wholly kind of agree with that. Just instinctively, I don't have any evidence, but I'm definitely going to read that. Um, yeah. No, I, 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 that was it. It just wasn't, it didn't seem to it didn't make sense. And now I have other questions around like, well, why, why would we can, and I suspect a lot of those texts are still taught. Like, why are we still listening to just like a small group of men who, in this, who came up with these theories in a particular moment in time and the world moved yeah. on so much as well that it just doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make sense. Um, especially as I was looking, you know, we were studying things like the cold war and, and the difference between the psychology of the, of Russia versus the U S like there's such, there's such different things have influenced how they would behave. I thought I was thinking, you know, countries behave much like humans in the sense of having different psychologies and different experiences. So yeah, uh, I would, yeah, it was, it was like I was in the institution, but I was probably deeply questioning it. But I think the main thing, and this is the thing that I see throughout the pirate community is, you know, it's, it's confidence. You don't, and the, and the, and internalizing the idea that no one's coming to save you. And by that, we mean no one really knows. Like, mm, yeah. degree to, I mean, pe- obviously people have expertise and that shouldn't be overlooked at all. So it's not to say ignore experts or, but it's just to, yeah, to sort of ensure that you do question those bigger narratives. Um, and I think I did, like I did come out of university doing that because I went to the Middle East for six months and went to sort of look around no that sounds so that sounds so like you know what they call it voluntourism but like I went to I just wanted to see you know for myself to because there's only so much you can learn from a book in the end and just try to as much as language barriers were possible speak to people understand what their experience of the world was um yeah and I felt that would be equally as educational and it was and then I came back and kind of wanted to work in the charity sector or the, within sort of international development as a way to, I don't know, help and I can fix things in some way. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't really know what that looked like. I didn't really have any specialist skills still. So I was almost in the same position, like al- almost like the world had become more complicated and I didn't know what to do, um, <laughs> but you just start somewhere. So, and I worked for a, yeah. a campaign called the um, Global Citizen Um that was then called the Global Poverty Project. And that really opened my eyes up to a lo- almost a lot more inequality and issues. And I don't know if, I mean, it was fascinating and motivating, but it was also like, I definitely had a bit of a mini meltdown at some point, just because the work, the problems seemed so entrenched and I didn't, and unfixable. And yeah, and I think I saw somewhere in your bio, you saying something like it felt, like the people who worked in charities were really detached from the causes they were trying to fix or the problems they're trying to fix. So <laughs> tell me more about that. Oh God. Um, this is where I dig myself a hole, but maybe not. <laughs> um, yeah. So this is actually probably a bit later. Like the, the guys at Global System were brilliant and really passionate and and brave and willing to go beyond um and then it was really, to be honest, well, I, I did, took a job in a social care charity and that was a bit of a terrible experience, um, kind of on a personal level too, which I won't go into, but, um, you know, that I think that I was dealing with people who, um, were like frontline care workers, working with people with mental health and learning disabilities. And I mean, 
what point one, like the level of bureaucracy that got in everyone's way was just phenomenal. Um, they just weren't creating things that actually work for people. And then the power and management was, they didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel like they really cared about the people. And, mm. and then I started working in the RSA and that, that environment is, is slightly different in that it's the kind of thought leadership world, let's say, where really the goal it feels is to have like, to be seen, to have great ideas. And I <laughs> wonder where that comes from. I mean, on a really basic level, I think, and it's something I always say to people in workshops about how do you disrupt that environment? And you can disrupt it by taking your researcher staff out into the world and going to the places that they're kind of researching and writing about. But that was something that didn't really happen. It was sort of seen as a waste of resources to like go and spend time with, you know, like a random group of people who you might really learn something from. And it, it's mm. something that's come back to me so much through Be More Pirate that my network is now not homogenous anymore. Like, my, you know, I best, some of my like good friends, my pirate friends are like in their um, mums with, t- with kids and ha- live in Manchester. <laughs> and yeah. Otherwise I was pretty much just within like a sort of very middle-class professional bubble. And that was really, yeah, it was very much an echo chamber of that. And it, there, no one was doing anything to disrupt it. So uh, I'm trying to be diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it yeah i think that it was a bit of a, comp- a bit of an ego driven competition um and you know what's the point in writing another blog and another report with like 10 takeaways like do the takeaways you know yeah what? right yeah. come on let's get our like boots on the ground and go and do it or even mobilize the brilliant networks that you have to do it what's the point otherwise we can't go another cycle mm. of a year and congratulate ourselves and say oh, brilliant, we got this amount of views on our website, we've rebranded our website, we've got, you know, this many newsletter opens, if you don't know the impact at the end. And this is, you know, not to say that the RSA doesn't have any impact or anything like that, just sort of naming them as the, where because of where I've come from, but it just, it just wasn't, I didn't feel real. <laughs> um, so that really... That, yeah, that really influenced my, um, and I'm not saying in any respect that female pirate has all the answers either. Cause I think that's a mistake to go. Cause then you just end up. Cause then you're just, yeah. yeah the, the person with um, the, the coolest new idea. Yeah, exactly. Right? And that's not yeah. it. That's not it. And that's why I like people taking the ideas and just making them their own and, and adapting yeah. and going, well, actually this bit doesn't work. And for us, we need to do it this way. And that's why I say with the pirate code, like, there is no one way to do this. There's no magic formula of principles that will make you right. It's your culture. You have to decide what works here based on the dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, so that feels like obviously it was a big switch for you and uh, feels like the, what lit the spark into, in towards, the pirate world was burnout, which you're talking about before. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to know more about what you what you went through with burnout and also what you learned from it. Yes. Um, yeah, it's really, I've actually been reading about this quite a lot recently because I think I definitely put myself at risk of it last year again. Um, so it's not, so I realized it's not, so when I was at the RSA, I think it was, um, a burnout that comes when you don't understand what per- what your purpose is. You're like, what am I? What am I contributing to here? 
I do the same thing day in day out, but I don't I don't really see what it's what it's achieving fully, other than mm. you know within yeah I did like in terms of what matters to me. Let's say what yeah. am I achieving in terms of what I really value, and so that burnout was just a real sort of slow like disengagement. I mean, I think that's a particular kind. Um, but then I've since realized that I probably have a slightly inbuilt productivity drive that comes from my parents to an extent, but also I think our generation where, and I read a really good article on this that really helped me to process what burnout is, um, where she talks about it, in, particularly in relation to the sort of millennials, um, a period where, you know, we came out dealing with a recession and there being a sort of gradually less, you know, few, fewer jobs or fewer job, less job security and coupled with kind of rising costs and that we have been, have grown up to kind of think that we can beat that if we, that the system's unfair, but if we optimize ourselves enough, we'll beat it. And we, there's got to be something mm. so be that winner. And that's definitely yeah. what I have grown up thinking. Like you could, like, you know, from competitive schooling, like taking the 11 plus, like you can win. Like fundamentally there's, if you work hard enough, you can win. And then now that I essentially through Be More Pirate, um, my job is to question the system itself. I now see that it's wrong to try to optimize yourself against a failing system because that's why you end up with burnout. And that isn't your fault. The, the system is the fault and the system is what needs to change. Like it's not okay. Why, why should we work like over, you know, 10, 10 to 12 hours a day? like in order to get everything done that needs to be done in order to make this, this company achieve its growth targets, like growth, you know, now I dig into it more like growth being, um, a, a measure of success that is killing the planet that, that was created in a wartime period to maximize productivity that yeah. like when we're still using it and it's, and it's not the right thing to be using. So permanent growth is such a screwed up thing isn't it and it's just become and you even hear you know bbc you know politics or economics correspondence just talking about oh the growth is only at this and it, it's said in such a way that it it's just taken as read that that's the most important thing that we should all be thinking about yeah but it's nuts it's absolutely nuts yep it, it is nuts and like you say when you see those like figures of authority like people with authoritative job titles like mm. politics or economics correspondent on the BBC, you think they can't have done all that on studying and knowledge <laughs> to get it wrong, right? <laughs> so probably me. But I but then there are these few lone voices who stand up and say, actually, mm. um, we're getting it the wrong way around. And I think we can no one can deny that we are contributing to the destruction of the planet <laughs> through this. So and I think that we that human sustainability is another big issue, like knowing how you how you as a human are sustainable too. Um, and it's not through spending, um, at, yeah, it's not through spending all day every day at a computer screen for sure. Um, I had a really good chat with another pirate in Germany the other morning, and we talked about what we would do to set a, a new kind of culture. And if we had a, a new community to build, like how would we create the culture and I said one of the things I said was ensuring that you know everybody everybody had like fifty percent of their time if they want you know if it was a computer based task but fifty percent of the time had to be something that was physical 
as a job to mm. do. I mean, yeah. that's a, that sounds a bit, that's a bit directive, actually. Like, you must do 50%. It would be more flexible than that. But, yeah, that idea that there's different kinds of work and the idea that we just do sort of one role is um, probably not particularly good for our kind of, for our balance, that we need mental stimulation, we need yeah. physical stimulation. And how, and how can we look at, an, you know, an economics that balances those things and makes the most of it? Yeah. <laughs> and I guess linked to that is recognizing that we all do lots of stuff that really should be classed as work that is not classed as work, right? So childcare is a huge part of that. Domestic chores and gardens and all these things that we do, it's only measured in terms of the bits of that that create profit for companies, whereas all of it can be valuable work mm-hmm. and all of it makes a little bit of the world better in some small or large way absolutely yeah yeah um we've got about 10 minutes and i'd love to talk to you um a bit more about something you mentioned before which is switching off yes and the i think i think you kind of categorized it as your seeming inability to sometimes switch off um so i'd love to know more about what you've done around that and how how you've recognized the problem and um things that may have kind of worked <laughs> yeah there's definitely um thing techniques that i use to make sure i do switch off otherwise i don't sleep um but it's been a gradual process and a process of my own piracy as well like rebelling against you know recognizing those things i just talked about about why burnout happens has, has like mm. empowered me to say no and re- like i almost find it quite um quite liberating to just be like oh i, I see why this has happened but i you know in terms of i mean i read i read i read fiction i think that's the, one of the easiest ways that i switch off um something that's really immersive uh that just helps me kind of get into an entirely different world and i think and how do you how do you make the leap from feeling buzzed full of ideas to being sat with a fiction book because obviously sometimes that's the moment where we give ourselves the hardest time and feel the most guilt, right? It's like, I must do these other five things. So you don't get to the point where you're opening. Yeah. So I I think for me, there's a series of like, like there's been a lot of cognitive kind of reasoning that has had to go on before I can just sit down with the book. Like a big thing is the fact that now that I'm captain of Be More Pirate, let's say that my job is much more doing this. So talking to people, facilitating, speaking, and I can't come to it if I'm drained. And, mm, and so yeah. it, it's actually, weirdly, I, maybe this is not a good technique because I've sort of gone, well, this is also part of my job, so therefore I need to pr- protect myself. But I think that, that that should be, it shouldn't just be when, because I have this job role of speaking, like that should be something that everybody can think about. like Because it affects how you show up in your relationships and everything. Um, And so, yeah, kind of coming, you know, at the end, quite often... In previous lives, I think people can't get home from work, slump on the sofa, kind of moan at their partner and say, oh, it's a really hard day. And then, you know, you'd be putting that all on someone else. But um, if you thought about it as like my world is that I need to, it's about how it's just, it's not just about the fact that I was productive at work. It's about how I show up in every respect. And I need to protect that um, by like limiting the stuff at work that drains me. So I think there's a, yeah, like an un, kind of cognitive, I've reorientated how I think about work. Um, I do do meditation as well. So that's like an actual technique. But I tend to do that more in the morning than the evening. Um, 
But I think there's also, yeah, just more, it's more sort of justifications to myself that help me um, not, not caring as much what people think. Um, and that's been a process of obviously writing a book, talking about being more, or being more visible, I think, than I, you are, I was before when you work in an organization that I kind of have to, yeah, n- not put too much store in people's praise or in their criticism. Otherwise I'd, I'd find myself too crippled by trying to please everybody. So I kind of have to like yeah. please myself a bit, um, which is. Tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. Cause I'd, I'd love some tips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't nailed it by any means, but I've, I've noticed over the, the year that, um, I, okay. So one thing I did was try and find some role models who don't give a shit. He, he just think, God, you're great. I want to be like that. And that mm. really helped to reorientate me. Like I, I listened to this podcast called the last Bohemians. And it's like these women in their like latter year, like I'll say their, what do you call it? Their, um, I'll say the golden twilight. Oh, I don't years. know what you call it. Say they're, you know, probably over 50, most of them. And yeah, just there are women who were like creatives or artists or, you know, groupies in the seventies who trying to just live their life. Like whatever, like just throw yourself into experiences, like create stuff. Who cares what ever anyone thinks of it. And the woman who started the podcast, I think she's a journalist. I can't quite remember her name, but she said like, we've got so much anxiety now in this Instagram generation about what people think. Like our generation, this generation of women need some of that energy again. Like we need to just be like, throw Wind, mm. like who cares what people think and i think be more pirate has that kind of bohemian like spirit behind it of just yeah. get on the ship and sail off and yeah so that i think about that often i think about what would they do <laughs> so yeah just having role models who are people who can just throw caution to the wind have a sense of abandon and just have that attitude of like who cares just do it yeah I think he, I think you know them when you see them or when you hear them you go yeah. oh god I, want, I wish I was a bit more like that and that for me that helps me to to when I get up in the morning and I think like how am I going to be it's not so much what am I going to do but how am I going to be yeah and yeah just recognizing that like are you actually Graham you said this on I think you said it on LinkedIn you said some people will find you annoying and some people will find you inspiring and whatever and I thought that was really helpful. Yeah. Um, I think that was probably me retweeting someone else. Okay. Maybe. But yeah, I think I did I did share that the other week. And part of that's for me, right? Mm. So I'm putting that out there to to kind of say, hey, you might find me annoying. Maybe you find something I said inspiring and like I have to just carry on putting stuff out even even if it's the former, right? Yeah. Because otherwise you just, like you say, you get crippled with it and then you can't do anything. Yeah. And someone else posted me something that was like, leadership is just showing up every day. I was like, that sounds doable. Mm. Um, yeah, I can do that yeah. bit. <laughs> Keep on showing up, even if you find me yeah. too annoying. But yeah, I, I, I probably learned a lot from Sam as well, in fairness. Like he, mm. he um, kind of has a, an innate ability to, I think, kind of, he might he might disagree with me, but I think he has an innate ability to sort of brush himself off. Um, and you know, when you look, when we've, we've done some exercises before on like leadership timelines and looking at your peaks and your troughs and his is like up, down, up, down and like very, very sharp. And I think. What do you mean leadership timeline? So as in like impact and stuff? It it was an exercise we did through a sustainability course we did. And they said like 
pinpoint moments of leadership in your life and they can be um Uh moments where you've um shown leadership or moments where um you've had seen great leadership um but but then he kind of adapted it and did a bit of like a timeline of his like achievements or or like not achievements and all i guess his sort of just his his history that's brought him to this point and started to use it in some of the more recent work and it's just the it's just very very striking that it's there's such deep troughs and and peaks um perhaps i don't know if everyone would have that but it's like god in so highs and lows of like success and failure yeah. basically yeah um yeah. i think it started off relating to leadership and is now just more generic sort of success and failure mm. but i don't know there is a, there's a real reassurance in the fact that you can have these deep you know troughs of failure and and still kind of come out successful and maybe there'll be some other dips but so every time you get into the to the fear, or where, you know what's where's the fear coming from? It's always that trying to protect yourself from potential failure or criticism. Actually, yeah. just kind of embrace it when it comes. Um, yeah, and just seeing, you know, he's like, I think he said on a pod, or he said to me, or he said on a podcast that, you know, it was one point where with Liberty, where he, you know, he got death threats because of of some of the decisions being made, and you know, on about that wow. now, I think God, that would that would like destroy me to think that I, but you don't, you don't, you you get, you kind of get through it. You get on with it. You do something new. That new thing is really interesting. People love it. And then maybe like something else happens. And I don't know the feeling for me of the arc of life reassures me (laughs) a bit in Mm. not holding back. I'd quite like to have been, I don't think I've ever had a death threat. I think I'd remember if I had, (laughs) my memory is terrible, but I think I'd remember, but I, I would like to, I would like to be someone who has come through the other other side of that because I think if you've if you've dealt with the emotion of receiving a death threat, then somebody on Twitter thinking that you're wrong on a Tuesday afternoon, like it's just going to be so water off a duck's back, isn't it? Like you're not going to think about that in any kind of consequential way. Yeah, definitely. Do you do you have any sort of tech like things that you that help you in that respect? I mean. I don't know. I think if Twitter has been... Sorry, you just froze there. Say oh, I just again. said, do you have anything that helps you in that respect? Because um, I don't know, like I think Twitter's such a, a bit of a sort of stampede that I don't know, you don't, don't take too much stock of it, unless it's someone you really respect. <laughs> yeah. So I've been listening to a lot of Aisha Akambi's stuff mm-hmm. recently, who's this um really incredible young thought leader around social media and um and the whole culture war thing mm-hmm. and all that stuff and one of her things is like don't give any credibility don't be offended by the opinions of someone who you don't give credibility mm. to yeah so it's like why do you care what they think <laughs> basically yeah. and it's such a simple thing but i i definitely think about that a lot and I suppose the other really honest answer to that is I try and bury my head in the sand away from that criticism, right? Like it's just kind of easier to survive it if you don't hear it. So like if ever I share the link to my book on Amazon, I only look at the very, my eyes are only allowed to be at the top of the page because I don't want to read the reviews or even see how many of the five stars are colored in today I don't want to see it. 
and and I'm the same with like you know LinkedIn and Twitter and all that sort of stuff it's like you know I mean not not that I'm really on Twitter very much or that there's many comments but like I try and just not see I, if I if I can't see any any of that stuff then it can't hurt me either whereas I think it'd probably be better to just be so thick-skinned that it's all fine yeah um but I think in reality that's very that describes very few people in the world like I think a lot of people get more affected by that stuff than um than they let on yeah you know or, or that it's cool to let on it's like yeah like I, it cuts me up man if someone's like oh this thing you did was really shit like that that's really or like even worse where someone goes yeah this book was okay like that's that's almost like even worse than them really hating it because if someone really hates it you can kind of rationalize it as they are projecting their own lives onto their comments mm-hmm. and that's always the way the way people talk about it is like this you're hearing more about them than you are about about your work but when someone just goes yeah it was kind of meh <laughs> like that's like the worst yeah well, no, it's a strong reaction either way I yeah, think there are people who are kind of take more from people who've done who are doing the work as well i think they're a lot more yeah. conscious of what it takes uh, it's not easy to create something put it out um so if you're not really putting yourself out there or your opinions your ideas um then i mean you can criticize it but i i think i definitely pay less attention because um yeah i don't i think that it's you know it's i think this i don't know if this can sound right but there has got to be an appreciation of yeah how much it takes to really put something together as a as a product like a book for example um for sure, yeah. Rather than, um, you know, uh, just sort of imagining these things like, yeah, easy to do. Because um, so- I think like, yeah, it just in general, like criticism is easy, isn't it? And creation of anything is really hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, I think it's just as simple as that, mm-hmm. isn't it? Like criticism is just so easy mm-hmm. and it's become like even easier these days just with how easy it is to leave comments on social media and all that sort of thing. Definitely. Whereas actually not just having a good idea, but having it and then pulling the resources and people and time and everything else together to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, and I think another thing that helps me is to just think of the fact that I can improve like that, 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 you know, if you're perfect to begin with, like where is there to go anyway? That I like the idea that in five years' time I might be somewhere really like great and interesting and do it and produce something new and this is just maybe a baseline for now. Um, yeah. So that helps definitely. We should both hope that in five years' time we listen back to this and we're both embarrassed by it and that would be the best. <laughs> Probably, thing. right? Yeah, for sure. That's how it goes. Um, so tell us about where people can get the book and find out more about you and just uh, anything else you want to share at the end of the um, Yeah, you can buy Be More Pirate or How to Be More Pirate, the new book on our website, um, which is bemorepirate.com. It's like all very easy. You can email me, alex at bemorepirate.com if you have particular ideas about piracy or doing something pirate. I always like to hear people directly. Um, or sign up to our very infrequent newsletter on our website, which you may, may or may not get something soon. Um, and yes, if you if you buy the book off our website, you'll get it nicely wrapped with a um, skull and crossbones wax seal stamped. Nice. Yeah. Cool. 
and you won't have given money to Amazon, which is always another good uh, move too. Um, and I have to also say that uh, on people should go to your website just for the thing that pops up at the bottom that you think is a thing that tells you about cookies and then it's not a thing that tells you about cookies. So people should go to your website just to check yeah, that out. Do. <laughs> well, I mean, like I said, we ain't stealing your data because rarely, very, very rarely send any communication. <laughs> I don't know what I'd do with it. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Um, cool. Well, Alex, thanks so much for being on Beyond Busy. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a pleasure, Graham. Thanks so much. there you go alex barker and if you haven't checked out the previous conversation that i had with sam conniff who is alex's pirate partner in crime and we'll put the link to that in the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com so there you'll find links to everything that we talked about during the episode and lots lots more um just to say that this uh well two things to say one is that the outro to this episode is where i'm going to share my stuff now uh as i uh talked about a couple of weeks ago we've moved the podcast to be video and audio so uh, a couple of these ones we'd we'd kind of recorded the audio before we made this change so um that's why they're just on youtube with just sound uh but like very very quickly what you're going to start to see is that all of the episodes have a video component uh it just really gives us a lot more flexibility to share little you know, little, little tidbits and you know, bits that we cut out of episodes and stuff on YouTube and on Reels and all that stuff and uh, Instagram and, you know, all those places. So, um, yeah, my team behind the scenes uh, doing the social media uh, for us are really keen to get more of that that video content. You know, I think the word content is so terrible, isn't it? It's like everything I do is just content to fill containers. Do you know what I mean? Um, but anyway, yeah, so the end of the podcast is where we're going to end up doing the little kind of, you know, Graham's parish notices of what I'm doing and what's going on and all that stuff. So if you've stayed to the end, uh, thank you. And we will continue to uh, have normal service resumed on the endings. So hence, you know, a bit of rambling from me, um, signpost to stuff I'm doing, all that sort of thing. Um, so not loads to talk to you about at the moment other than to say that Think Productive are doing some free webinars um, over the next couple of months and I'm going to be doing a couple of live free webinars with Hayley Watts who is my partner in crime on the meetings book that's coming out in uh, early May. Uh, it's called How to Fix Meetings. It's available right now to pre-order. We'll put a link to that in the show notes at getbeyondbusy.com as well. But we're doing some free webinars. So if you want to sign up early for those free webinars, just go to thinkproductive.co.uk. And then from the drop-down menu, if you just click on uh, free webinars, and then you should see the dates listed there. Uh, So come join us. Come and talk about meetings. Geek out about meetings with us. Uh, That's going to be through the month of April, uh, but available to sign up right now. And as always, I'm doing my Sunday emails rev up for the week. So just go to graymalcott.com. And actually, if you go to graymalcott.com forward slash links, there's like a load of stuff on there, uh, which just talks about what I'm doing right now. Links to books, links to other stuff, links to this podcast, all that. So basically everything is at graymalcott.com forward slash links. See, we're getting more savvy around all this marketing stuff. It's, um, yeah, it feels a, a world away from my amateurish solo marketing efforts a year or so ago and and you know for for most of the last decade to be honest 
So yeah, it feels like uh, I'm sort of kicking into gear a little bit around the marketing, which is really cool. Uh, but yeah, I just want to say thanks to Riz and thanks to Emily and Aubrey and the team uh, for putting this together and to Think Productive, our sponsors for the show. So if you're interested in workshops, uh, productivity, time management, meetings, email, all that stuff, we can fix that stuff for you. Just go to thinkproductive.com. And there was one other thing I wanted to say, which is that this month we are doing a whole month a kind of uh, theme really for these episodes is spotlight on brilliant women. So because it's International Women's Day and Women's History Month, we thought it would be really good to just have each of the episodes this month uh, profiling a really inspiring female leader. So that's going to be happening all through this month. I think I'm pretty good on gender diversity. And as I said, around the time of Black Lives Matter, I think I was pretty good in the early phase of beyond busy on that and i did let that slip and um, i've been really on a uh, on a mission to make sure i change that and we've got some really good ones actually coming up um actually talking about uh bias and race and some of the conversations around that uh on a couple of the future episodes uh coming up over the next few weeks which will be in video format very exciting so um yeah lots more to come on that but i just really wanted to uh just be proactive around how i'm thinking about who this platform is uh you know elevating and amplifying and giving voice to so that's really the uh the spirit of things over the next uh few weeks for international women's day and international women's history month so um if you want to find out more just go to getbeyondbusy.com and as i said before graymalcott.com forward slash links you pretty much get everything you need from there and we'll be back next week with another episode. So until then, take care. Hope you're well. Hope you're feeling spring-like and optimistic. All good. Take care. Bye for now. Bye.